from Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, um, as we do every week, having just heard your word read, we, we want to pause, um, partly just because we don't want to treat this like any other text. We know that you speak to us. And the fact that you speak to us is extraordinary and you are worthy to be listened to. And so we pray for that. We pray that your spirit would help us to hear everything you want us to hear, that we would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, if you were with us last week, you'll know that uh, as we're beginning Romans, and we've been focusing at the very beginning on Paul's language of the gospel, we've spoken about how the gospel orients us towards a bigger story than we normally think about life. The gospel, if we understand, if we understand what God tells us in his word, we understand that there is a much bigger reality, that this world is more mysterious, more adventurous, more wonderful. And, and within this wonderful world, there is 
there is a cosmic battle taking place, a cosmic battle that we find ourselves in, whether we realize it or not. And near the very heart of this battle, we might say is almost the, the battleground itself is worship. Now again, as I've said before, when we're talking about worship, we're not primarily talking about what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings. This is important, but there's a sense that what we're doing here is practice, it's orientation. It is meant to point us beyond itself to all of life. Worship is meant to be an all-of-life posture. Worship, as we have said, is when we spend our lives on what matters most to us. That's the worship that we're talking about. And, and Christian teaching is that if you want to understand the world, you need to pay attention to worship. Because this world is organized in such a way that it only gains harmony, it only gains coherence, it only gains the health and beauty it was designed with when everything, and especially everyone, is oriented towards God in worship of Him. If you want to understand what is wrong with the world, then you need to understand what is wrong with worship. If you want to understand what's wrong with you, then you need to consider what might be wrong with your worship. Because, because Scripture teaches that the world is broken because our worship is broken. That we are broken. That we are sinful because our worship is disordered. If we want to look at the problems of this world, whether we're talking about racism, injustice, genocide, crime, whether we're talking about our own anxiety, addictions, failure, we can find the very root of all of these things in disordered worship. Which means if we long to see this world be made right, it will only be made right when our worship is made right which I realize is a huge claim, right? It, if this is true, this means everything. It, it means that the single most important focus on your life that you should be focusing on is how to turn your mind and your heart and your actions all in alignment so that you might grow in the right kind of worship that you were made for. If you are a parent, it means the single most important thing that you can do with your child is to help them to grow that they can give all of their lives in, in worship to God. If if this is true, then it means everything. So because this claim is so big, it is worth us taking a week to just to consider it. To consider why it is that at the heart of our problems is a problem with our worship. And that is what we see Paul doing in our passage this morning. Paul identifies a choice that has no explanation. There is a choice that humanity has made to break away itself from God that is utterly senseless and cannot be explained. There is a choice in our history, in our very identity at this point. A choice to say God is not our God and to turn our, health, our hearts elsewhere. Now, Paul does not try to explain what cannot be explained, but he does, in this passage, help us to understand what it means and its consequences. And we see that's right where he very begins in verse 18, where he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness 
of men. There's two focal points here. On one hand, he speaks of this choice and how it leads to a break with truth and righteousness with terrible consequences of disorder in our very selves and how there is a rejection of God and a godlessness and that leads to us being degraded. And I want us to consider both of those. First, this idea that we have broken with righteousness and truth and therefore disordered our very selves. So in our passage early on, we are meant to understand that the very nature of reality invites us to worship God. Verse 20 says that within creation, that, that what's plain to us is these things about God, that God it says, for his invisible attributes in verse 20, namely his eternal power and his divine nature are, are seen in this world, that this world sings to us a song that God is God and that his power sustains everything. How, how do we hear the song? How is this song being sung? Well, we, we spoke about it a little bit last week when we think about how this world just sings to us that God is God. Think... Think for a moment of beauty when you see the stars in the middle of the night and you're awestruck. Or you come to the end of just a great work of art, maybe a film that ends perfectly. There is something about that moment that calls out to you. Do you, do you know that feeling? It's been interesting. I've, I've read sometimes artists who like to discuss creativity. And, and sometimes people who are completely disconnected from Christianity. There's this um, producer, Rick Rubin, who's written a book on creativity. He's the producer of Def Jam Records. And, and he talks about that the, the, the practice of art and creativity involves opening yourself up to a reality that you can't see. There is this larger reality that beauty kind of calls out that even secular artists identify with. There is a creator that calls out to us through creation. Or think of, of just the simple act of knowing another person. When you know another person, you know they're more than just stuff. There is something about the other that is extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable. We know in just the very way that we relate that we are talking not just to material, but there are souls involved. We know there are persons and that very aspect of the fact that there are persons calls out for us to recognize that there is a person who made it all. Or think of how we experience love. When we are loved, there are a few things that are more powerful than that reality. It's what grounds us. It's, it's at the very heart of all that is good. And where does that love come from? It's not just from chaos. It, it invites us to recognize that there is a person who is himself love. If we just listen, we hear creation singing that there is one who is greater than all of this, who is God. And it sings also of how everything we have, everything we have comes from him. This is an obvious statement, but sometimes we forget it. Have you ever thought about the fact that in every single way, you and I are dependent beings? Right now, what is it that you are doing besides listening? You are breathing. Every breath is a reminder that your existence is due to things that are outside of you, things that you did not make. You exist because of oxygen. You exist because of nourishment that you probably had this morning, you'll be having at lunch. Food that maybe you baked, maybe you bought, but you certainly didn't initially create it, that comes to us from this world. 
Your very reason for being, your very existence is not something you did. Your parents gave birth to you, and it's not like they made you. Even they experienced this miracle of life coming to them. It all comes as a gift. And where does this gift come from? As, as we pause and see this world, deep down we know this world had a beginning. It was made. This world has a design to it. Creation sings that all things are being held together, all things we receive from the gracious hand of God. Creation sings, and it invites us to sing with it. It invites us, as it sings that God is great, to honor God with our song. It invites us, as it says, everything comes from God's gracious hand to respond with thanksgiving. This is the harmony, the, the unity that this world was made for. And yet this is the very thing that we have rejected. The very harmony and beauty that we introduce dissonance and brokenness and wrongness into. It was a terrible choice. And like is often the case when we make terrible choices, it also involves a cover-up. You might, um, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you know it's a terrible story. Um, where, where David, one of his closest friends, he ends up using his, his, his power as king and abusing it to have sex with his closest friend, one of his closest friend's wife. But then it doesn't just stop there because he is so concerned when she becomes pregnant that this deed will come to light, that he does everything to bury it, including ultimately killing his close friend. But in some ways, the burial doesn't even just stop there. There is a sense that we find that, that David, after he has done that, he does whatever he can to kind of forget it, to disconnect him from the reality, so that when he is confronted later on by a prophet, Nathan, who uses an analogy that's fairly obviously pointing to David, David is completely clueless until Nathan makes it explicit. It's like he has buried it so deeply that he himself no longer understands the terrible thing that he did. And if you are any student of psychology, you are aware this is, this is a very common thing. When we have done something that we know is wrong, it is very hard to just let that sit. We, we do all sorts of work inside of us to kind of resolve the cognitive dissonance, to, to become a person that we feel okay with. Maybe what we do is we just kind of like put it at arm's length so that we're not thinking about it. We treat it as if it's something insignificant. Or perhaps more commonly, if you think about how you might be sometimes when you've done something that you don't, that you don't like, how, how you'll start kind of coming up with reasons for it. You'll start even maybe changing the way you see things, different from how you used to, so that it can all make sense. We, when we do something terrible, we cover it up, not just from others. We cover it up from our own souls. And, and Paul says that very thing has happened to us when it comes to this terrible choice. If we go again to the very beginning, it talks about how humanity by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. 
Creation sings to us a song, but we do what we can to drown it out. Perhaps we drown it out through distraction. We, 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 we say something like, yeah, that's probably right that God made it, that God is real, but I'm busy, and, and is it really that important, and it's probably not that relevant, which, which makes no sense, because if our world is made by someone who's at the center of it, how can it not be relevant? Or, or, or maybe we, we provide just enough confusion so that we have plausible deniability. You know, some people think that, you know, beauty and love, they're just, they're just things that we're making up inside of our brain, just synapses firing. And, you know, scientists tell us that that really human beings are just kind of the accidental outcome of lightning hitting a primordial ooze. And really all of this, it just comes from an accidental explosion that just happens to be the way things are right now. These are things that sometimes we hear, maybe we've even heard it close to ourselves and we sometimes think about these questions. And, and yet none of them actually really feel persuasive when you look closely, right? Do, do we really believe that we're nothing more than just accidents? That beauty is just something we're making up? If we say that the world came from a, a big explosion, then there's still the question of, well, where did that come from? And scientists might mumble something about a multiverse, but then where did the multiverse come from? We, we don't have an answer, but, you know, honestly, we don't need the answer because all we need is just enough to keep things complicated. Just enough so that we don't have to really look at what is real and at what we have done. See, we suppress the truth so that we can feel okay about things. But the problem with that is we do something to ourselves in the process, just like with every rationalization leads to us changing ourselves Scripture talks about how what in some ways happens when we choose to suppress it is like we, we turn the light off. It talks about our darkened hearts in 21, or, and, and futile thinking. See, when we choose to forget some things, when we choose to hide our eyes from some things, other things will follow. If, if we choose to forget that, that God is God, then it's really hard for us to hold on to the idea that humanity is sacred because they are in God's image. Maybe they're no more than animals. If we forget that this whole world is given to us as a gift, then it's easy for us to lose any sense of gratitude for this world. If we forget that there is one who is true and right, then it's easy for us to begin to wonder whether truth and righteousness are even something at all. And it doesn't just stop there. When we introduce this broken, disordered way of being in our very selves, that cascades, it has a ripple effect, not only to our thinking, but to our actions. If, if humanity is, is nothing more than animals, then why would it be wrong in times to treat humanity like animals? If, if this world is not a gift, then let's just take it and exploit it. 
if there is no one right or truth, then all that matters is for me to be able to say and convince other people of what is most convenient for me. Our, our, our lack of connection to truth turns into a lack of connection with what is right. And if we go near to the end of our passage, we see that very connection, that, that cascade effect being described in verse 28. Where Paul says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, there's the knowledge part, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you see? The lie within us leads to an unrighteousness in our behavior, and then we see in the following verses all manner of things that are the worst parts of humanity. Covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. The list goes on. Paul is saying this is what happens when we introduce a lie into the very core of who we are. We become deeply, deeply disordered. He Someone summarizes the whole effect of it in verse 32. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know the truth. And yet, they not only do these things, but they actually give approval to those who do these death-deserving deeds. It's, it's like our souls have this kind of internal compass, a, a sense of where the true north, of, of what is true and what is good. And it's to kind of just make sense of ourselves, what we've done is we've taken that compass and we've turned N and put S and turned the S and put N and made north-south and south-north. We have decided that truth is a lie and lie is the truth and what is good is actually wrong and what is wrong is actually good. There is such deep disorder within us and there are terrible consequences in us and society as a result. Paul says, we have shut our connection to truth and righteousness and introduced disorder into us and in the world. And there's a second way where this terrible choice has had catastrophic effects upon us. As we've exchanged glory, we have degraded ourselves. So you see on a couple of different occasions that Paul speaks of this idea of, of exchanging. So verse 23, we exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. Or verse 25, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We, we had everything and instead we traded it in for a cheap substitute, Paul is saying. New Testament scholar Tom Wright says, and I think he's correct about this, that just like nature abhors a vacuum when it comes to physics, so also our heart abhors a vacuum when it comes to worship. That is, when we turn our hearts away from God in the way that we're meant to be, it's not that we stop worshiping, it's that we need something to revere so we find it elsewhere. We find things around us that we think are good and we decide to make them our gods to worship them. We see this if we just look in, in like ancient religions. Think of the different gods that you sometimes hear in, in, in amongst the ancient pantheons. Think of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Or we hear of Mammon, the, the god of, of finance, of wealth. Or Hephaestus, the god of technology. Each of these are examples of, of people seeing something that is good and elevating it and worshiping it. Which is weird, right? That you would just take these and make gods of them. I mean, it makes so much more sense to be in a secular age where we don't worship sex 
or money or progress. Except, of course, we do, right? We just aren't honest about it. I mean, we, we don't need to spend too long looking at billboards and ads or seeing how much money is made by Pornhub before we recognize that a whole lot is being spent on the goddess Aphrodite, whether they know that name or not. Or think in that category of even the way that the word chastity is used. The idea that one would choose to not act on their sexual impulses, but instead to forego them for other reasons. It's not just that people in our day see that as difficult. They see it as dangerous. Who are we to not follow our desires within us? Do we understand? That's worship. That's saying we must obey this goddess. My guess is I don't need to convince us that we are in a culture where mammon worship is is prevalent. It's not just that we see people being driven by the desire for for more income, but but think of the way that our, our society is organized around maximizing profits. Or how, how the economy is spoken of in almost religious terms where our happiness and welfare rises or falls on the mysterious waves of the economic output. We, we have a worship for mammon. Or consider Hephaestus, consider progress, how How we just assume that if something is new, it is better. We think of things that are old-fashioned, old-fashioned ideas, the way that we thought about sexuality 15 years ago. Of course, that's wrong. Why? Progress. Things will get better. Technology will save us. Why? Progress. There is this blind belief that as we think new things, as we do new things, it will move us towards salvation. We, We have a worship of Hephaestus. Again, we don't give them the the cool names. We don't make the beautiful statues. But we have done the very same thing. Where we take something that is good that is in the world and we elevate it and we give ourselves to it in value. And it is a tragic exchange that we have made. See... The thing about worship is it becomes something that defines us. What you most revere, what you most value is what you will most resemble. I mean, in a kind of a simple way, think of, think of if you have someone that you think highly of, the people that you most think highly of, you will want to become like, and that's just a small picture of the way it works. You and I were given extraordinary dignity when we were created. We had the dignity of knowing the eternal God. And our calling was in our knowledge and delight in him to so become like him that we reflect his beauty to the world around us. We are God's images. That is our calling where we, in a creaturely way, become like the eternal God. And any exchange of that for something that is found in this created world is an enormous step down. In it, in this exchange, we become degraded. Multiple times, Paul, when he speaks of the implications of this, he will speak of, like in verse 24, dishonoring our bodies 
or he speaks later about dishonorable passions. There's a degrading that takes place when we exchange the glorious God that we are meant to worship for things that are far less than him. And we see it if we just think about it. He, he uses as an example of this degrading sexuality, of, of giving ourselves over to the goddess Aphrodite, how we are willing to sacrifice wisdom and, and self-control to give ourselves up. Specifically, he uses the example of homosexuality, not because homosexuality is the, the greatest of all sins, but it is a clear example of a sin that displays the greatest of all problems, and that is our idolatry. As giving in to our homosexual passions leads to a life that goes against the very nature of how we were designed by God. But we could expand beyond that if we think of other modern examples of what happens, how we are degraded when we give ourselves to Aphrodite. You know, one of the things you see oftentimes in idol worship is children being sacrificed, and we see it. Think within the proliferation of pornography of how prevalent child pornography has become. Or think of how many families, how many kids' lives have been permanently changed because one of their parents decided to follow their heart into an affair. We sacrifice our own children towards the goddess of Aphrodite. Or think of how we are degraded by the mammon worship. We even have a, 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 a phrase, a common phrase for how it does to us. We talk about people selling out. Selling out, what does that mean? It means we are willing to give up something crucial to who we are so that we can get more money. And it's not just at an individual level. Think of how, how we're willing to degrade entire, entire races of people, whether it's an enslavement so that we can have cheaper stuff, or whether it's sweatshops so that we can have cheaper stuff, we degrade ourselves in the pursuit of mammon. Or think of what has happened to us in our blind adoration of progress. We now are awesomely able to nuke the whole world many times over. We can clone embryos and do with them what Ever we want. We stick iPads in front of our infants to entertain them as we doom scroll in our own social media. And we're told that we're about to be in this brand new era of artificial intelligence and many people are afraid, but we don't stop. Why? Because we have to keep going. Because progress should not be stopped. But what is it doing to us? Are we any more human or are we less than we once were? The point is not to say that all of these things are horrible. They're not. These are good things. Sex and love is good. Wealth and the gifts of creation are good. The, the technology that God gives us and the ability to continue to grow, these things are good. But when we exchange the glory of God for something as lowly as these things, we become far less than we were meant to be. Do you see the connection? Do you see how, how this turning away from God, this, this failure to give ourselves to God in worship comes at the root of so much that is wrong, how, how it brings about a disorder in us 
a lack of the understanding of truth, a lack of what is right, how it degrades us individually and as a society. Do you see why it is so important that our worship right now is so deeply broken? If you see, I, I want to suggest that, that that very ability to see itself is a gift from God. You might have noticed how, it very, how verse 18 introduces all of this by saying, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's not just that we're seeing that God is angry, it's that God is choosing to show his anger, his passionate hatred of that idolatry. And, and how is he doing it? Well, it says, God gave them over to the consequences of their action. Verse 24, it says it repeatedly, God gave them over, God gave them over. You know, if you are a parent, you know that sometimes one of the best things you can do, and yet one of the hardest things that you could do, is to allow your children to experience the painful consequences of their actions. Sometimes that is the only way for someone to come to recognize and to be changed. And I would suggest that what we are seeing here is God doing exactly that. In his wrath towards all that is wrong, he is revealing his wrath. He is handing us over to the consequences. Even as we see in verse 32, he is saying, this is the way of death. Why is he doing this? Not to bring us down and to destroy us, but to lead us to a place of repentance, to lead us to recognize the wrongness that we might turn. Why can I say that so confidently? Because of the verses that went right before this. Because this is in the context of Paul saying, I am so excited to share the gospel with you, the gospel that God has sent his son to make everything right that you have made wrong. That God, the God who is angry at all this evil, in love has given his son for what? It says, for salvation. Salvation for whom? For the people who have it together? No. Salvation for idolaters to everyone who believes. The gospel is that all that we have broken through our broken worship, Jesus is coming to make right. And here's where this is going to go. In, in, in a number of chapters, when we finally get to Romans 12, after Paul has basically said, let me explain the gospel. Let me explain what Jesus has done. Let me explain the implications. Now, now that you understand the mercies of God, let me tell you what you get to do. You get to worship God again. You get to now offer your bodies as something like a living sacrifice. A, a living sacrifice. Though right now you might feel dead and you are dead in your sins, you are now made alive through Jesus. You get to offer yourselves as holy. Though right now you have degraded yourself in Jesus, you are made holy in God's sight. And though right now, because of what you have done, you, you know that God is angry towards those sins. In Jesus, it says, as you offer yourselves to God, you are pleasing to him. All that you have lost through the terrible choice that humanity has made, 
all is restored, that you might once again experience the life of worship that you were designed to experience. That is where the gospel is taking us. And what we see in 16 and 17 is where it begins is by faith. Where it begins is for us experiencing and recognizing the wrongness of turning away from God and repenting and turning to him and receiving the gifts he has for us. That's something that we do whenever someone begins to be a Christian, but it is also the constant thing that we do again and again as we seek to follow Jesus. We seek to turn away from what is wrong and receive what he has done for us. And I invite you to do that even this morning. That, that we might turn our hearts in worship to him. Let's take some time to acknowledge where we've turned away from him in confession. And then in a few moments, we will hear the assurance of the gospel. So let's spend a few minutes in silent prayer. <laughs>